chapter 5. Matthew 5. Last week, we began our walk through this sermon that was preached by Christ. You've probably heard of it, called the Sermon on the Mount. He preached it towards the beginning of his ministry, and it's a sermon all about what it means to to live as a person who's a part of the kingdom of God. If, if Sometimes I like to give a question. What does this sermon answer? What question is it answering? Here's the question that we could say the Sermon on the Mount is answering. How do people who are part of the kingdom of God live? That's the theme of the message that Jesus preached. And we looked at the introduction to it last week there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And what we saw in those first 12 verses is it's a fantastic introduction. It's an overview. Jesus is telling us, here are the attributes of the person who's living in the kingdom of God, the kingdom kind of person. This list, we see it in verses 2 to 12, we often refer to it as the Beatitudes. It describes this way of life. Jesus wants us to know what it looks like to be this kind of person. He wants us to know that to live his way, it's a life of blessing. That's where we were last week. We considered this description of the people of God. And I want to start there this morning because it really informs where we're headed in this next paragraph. You know, as we go through this, I'm going to have to say this a lot, I think, for myself and for all of us. We're breaking this up into paragraphs, but Jesus wasn't taking week-long breaks in between these sections. And so I want to help us make this connection between where we started last week and what he says today. With that said, let's start. I want to go back to where we were and and read those first verses again. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 2. Follow along as I read. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that's where we were last week in I want to remind you of a couple things about what we just read. First, he's he's describing the people who are part of the kingdom of God. And here's something that we tried to to consider last week, that what we have here is not necessarily a list of eight different kinds of people. It's not that some people are pure and some people are merciful and some people are peacemakers. What he's describing is this is what the person of God looks like. A person who's a part of the kingdom of God is pure and seeking after righteousness, and is a a merciful person, a person who's poor in spirit, which is a way of saying we recognize our position before God. 
we're people who mourn and that we recognize our sin and we, we, we know our need. So he's describing the people who are part of the kingdom of God. And I think many of that, we could say he's describing us in some measure. That's the first thing we emphasized last week, that this is a description of a person. But the, another overarching theme and something I hope you remember from our time together last week is that when we live this way, when we live as the people of God, we should look different from the world around us. This is a call to, to be a person who's living counterculturally, different than the culture. And, and we remember that we've changed kingdoms, right? We say kingdom, maybe, what are we talking about? We're talking about that there is a king and we're, we're living underneath his reign. But we're not born living necessarily under the reign of God. We're not submitting to him. We're born submitting to the, the kingdom of the world. And so Paul says in Colossians 1 that when we come to Christ, when we repent of our sins, he transfers us out of the, the domain or the rule or the kingdom of darkness, and he transfers us into the kingdom of his son. We've changed kingdoms, and what we recognize is that it looks different to live in a different kingdom. There's, it's a different kind of person. And so what we see as we look at this list, what we should see is that if we're truly living as God's people, we're going to stand out. We're going to be different from those around us. Different values, different goals. We're, we see the goal of life differently. Different purpose. It's a way of life that, frankly, if we live it fully, consistently, won't be popular. And he says that in the Beatitudes. He doesn't leave that up for us to discover. You saw at the end, persecution, opposition. Jesus says in another place, all those who follow me will suffer. Because we're, we're called to live in a way that's contradictory to the world, right? So it's not always going to be liked. So we're in a world living a it's part of a world system, but we're called to live as citizens of his kingdom. Which brings us to a good place to understand what's coming next in the next paragraph. He starts the sermon with the traits of the person of the kingdom of God. And in fact, as we go through, it, it doesn't get easier. The stakes keep getting raised. He keeps pointing out more and more ways that we look different from the world. And what I want you to consider this morning is that's on purpose. Here's another question. How do we think about what God has called us to as people who are living different from the world around us? And, and here's the temptation. Let's, can we all just be honest about the temptation? The temptation is to blend in. We don't want to look that different. That's uncomfortable. But Jesus tells us here at the very beginning of the sermon, he's very upfront. I'm calling you to live differently and there's a reason. There's a purpose. And that brings us to the next verse. So just trying to connect these paragraphs. The Beatitudes, and this next, they go together. Okay? Let's pick up and reading in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Again, you'll, you'll get tired of it. That's okay. I don't mind. For the next few months, we're going to go through the Sermon on Mount, and every week I'm going to tell you context, right? Because we're going to keep jumping into these paragraphs that you probably know. You've heard this verse, right? You have a coffee mug that says, you know, or maybe it's your salt shaker, salt of the earth, right? We've seen these things, magnets. You're the light of the world. And so we just hear that, and it's a, it's a, it's a reminder to us, and that's good. But it's important for us, especially right here, to, to get it back into the sermon. Where it is in the sermon is important. It's at the beginning. Jesus is going to call us over the next three chapters to live counterculturally, to live differently. And here's what he says at the very beginning. It's meant to do something. It's meant to accomplish something. Not only in us, but in the world. So we have these two metaphors. I love passages that have metaphors because I don't have to come up with them, right? Jesus has given us two metaphors, and they're helpful to us. There's a reason they're on salt shakers and magnets, right? They're good reminders for us. He says first that we are salt, those who are part of the kingdom of God. Christians were salt. Remember the difference between a simile and a metaphor? He doesn't say we're like salt, simile. It's a metaphor. He says, we are salts. I think I got that right. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And if we're going to understand the metaphor, we have to understand salt. And when I think about salt, the very first thing, wonder what you think about first. The very first thing I think about are my hot eggs. And, and I'm going to take my salt shaker and I'm going to sprinkle and it tastes so much better. It's got a little bit of salt on it. That's one use of salt that's always been a use of salt as far as I know, that people have used it to flavor their food. But there was a more primary use, and I think it's actually still a more primary use. We just don't see it as much. But salt's a preservative. Sodium, all the stuff, right? It preserves food. And for us, it comes packaged with these preservatives already built in. But in the time of Christ, they did the preserving themselves, Right? So an animal is, is butchered, and then they would need to preserve it, and so bring out the salt. And I think as we come here, the primary thing that Jesus probably has in mind, that his hearers have in mind, is salt is something that preserves. And take the meat, you rub salt all over it, and it's going to last longer. What happens if we don't salt it? It's stinky, doesn't it? It's rotten. It's not good for anything. But salt slows down the process of decay. It's a preservative slowing down the rot. And Jesus says, you're the salt. Now, before we get to you're the salt, let's consider the implication of what he's saying about the earth. So we've got two categories here, don't we? We've got the salt, and we've got the earth. 
And the salt is given to the earth, but the earth is what? Well, let's, let's start small and, and work our way out. What does the Bible say about who we are apart from God? The Bible says that on your own, without the work of God in your life, you're proud. You're a jealous person. Deceitful, lustful, angry, divisive. This is how the Bible describes our nature, what we're inclined to on our own. We take those things and we recognize that that's true not only of me and of you, but of every person in the world, and we, we bring that out. What do we see? We see a world that's made up of, of people who are proud and arrogant and angry, and you put us all together and things aren't going well. We live in a world that left to its own devices stinks. And it's only getting worse. Don't need to convince you of this, I don't think. You watch the news. Corruption, violence, wars, sex trafficking, riots. The things that mark our world and always have. If you're reading along with us, if you're reading through the Bible with us right now, um, we're almost in the Judges. And I just want to say, hey, you've only got two more days. You're almost there. We've been working our way through the book of Judges. And at the end, there's this tagline that we've already seen a couple of times in the book. This is way back thousands of years ago, this is how the world was described. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the way it's always been. And we can watch the news and shake our heads and say, what is this world coming to? But it should not surprise us. The scriptures are clear about the direction our sinful nature takes us. We're living in a fallen world that is headed towards death and destruction. It's the world we're in. then we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, I'm forming a kingdom of people, and this is what they look like. Poor in spirit, mournful over their sin, meek before God and others. Instead of being self-exalting, we're meek. Instead of loving evil, we hunger and thirst for what is right. He's making us into people of mercy and purity and peace, contrast, right? So listen again to what Jesus says. You're the salt of the earth. You're the preservative. We're part of the work that God's doing to redeem, to take people from death to life, from decay to being fully restored in Christ. You're the salt. By our very presence, God is using us to slow the rot. And when I say that, maybe if your mind goes where mine, we start thinking, you could start thinking, okay, so he's talking about political action, moral majority, change through propositions. There's a place for that, but that's not what God's calling for here necessarily. We're not called just to clean up the world, Right? He wants to take people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so he sends us out as salt so that people see their need. The primary change is taking people out of the kingdom of darkness and moving them to the kingdom of light. And I actually wrote this down. I hope I'm, I hope I'm making sense, right? 
I'm, I'm thinking through this. I'm thinking, is this clear that we're in this kingdom, but God's forming a new kingdom. And when this kingdom lives with this kingdom, it should look different. It should make a change. We should stand out. It's interesting, God, or Jesus speaking to people who are already the people of God, he doesn't say, you're becoming salt. He says, no, you are salt. You will stand out. You will be seen as different if you're living the way that God has called you to live. But there is this qualifier. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I'm not a salt expert. I'm not a scientist, uh, but I have the internet. And best I can tell, salt doesn't really expire. It doesn't suddenly go bad. But what happens and what would probably be likely during the time of Christ is that salt will get contaminated. It gets mixed up with other things. It gets blended together. If you've got more dirt than salt... It's not going to really do the work. We've been called to say, stay salty, to say pure. We've been called to stand out. God has a plan for us in the world. He's making himself known through us. He's using us to show the world his beauty and his glory and to speak of his salvation. But if we blend in with the world around us, if we're mixed up with the world and it's hard to siphon between salt and dirt. We're like salt without the properties of salt that make it effective. So Jesus is helping us to consider the call, what it means to live as the people of God in the world. And we emphasized this more last week. We get to this point, and you could be tempted to think, man, this is a grind. Trying to, to live as the people of God, this, it's a grind. There may be a sense of that, but I'll just mark this, remember this. Eight times blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. What's he saying? Yes, you've been called to live different. Yes, you're going to stand out, but this is a life of joy and contentment and blessing. You're the people of God. You will see God. It is a joy to be salt, right? And we are trying to bring others into the salt community. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples, right? He has these men who followed him. Peter probably was sitting there on that hill on the day when Jesus gave this sermon. And I like to think about that when I go and read like what Peter wrote later on to put him back there with Jesus hearing things like this. And then Peter writes this later on after Jesus has returned to the Father. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, speaking to the people of God, he says, You are a chosen race. You are a, a royal priesthood. A, pe a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, sit with that for a second, 
once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, those beloved by God, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, you hear the, the countercultural terms there? In the kingdom, inside the world, sojourners and exiles, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the world, honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. I think it's a perfect explanation of what Jesus is getting at in our passage. We are the people of God. It's a position of privilege and blessing and joy. And the temptation still, even though we know these things, is I don't want to look different. I'm going to blend in. But we've been chosen and set apart so people will see our good works and give glory to God. You are the salt of the earth, but if you're not salty, if you're not doing what salt does in your home, and doing what salt does in your workplace, and doing what salt does in your school, your neighborhood, well, the verse says you're, you're useless. Just the words of Jesus for you. As he describes life in the kingdom of God, he wants us to know that God is using us to reach the world, to show the world his glory. He's trying to prepare us for the rest of the sermon. And he says, just know this. I'm going to ask things of you that are going to make you look different. But just, just remember this. You're the salt. You're the salt of the earth and you're the, the light of the world. And that gets our second metaphor. If you've been around the Bible much, you know this is common imagery. The Bible says God is light and in him there is no darkness. I always want to encourage you to use your imagination because you have heard this phrase. If you've been around church and you've been around the Bible, you just know it. God is light. We are light. Got it. Can I just push you into the metaphor for just a second? Let's talk about darkness. Not the, I'm going out in my backyard in the middle of the city, dark, because that's not really dark. But the, I can't see my hand in front of my face kind of darkness. I think when you think about the darkness, the world, the, the Bible describes it's that kind of darkness, complete, total darkness. And this is the way the Bible describes us before God. In Romans 1, we're told that we had hearts that are darkened. In John 3, we're told we loved the dark. John 8, we walked in darkness. Romans 13, we were doing works of darkness. Ephesians 5, really straightforward, you were darkness. You get the point? Without God before Christ, this is the description. If you want to picture life apart from God, picture darkness. Can't see your hand in front of your face, darkness. But then the imagery continues. The Bible refers to God as light. God is light. Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world as light. Use the imagery. Allow the, the imagery of Christ, the light, coming into dark world. Visualize it. John says it this way, John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Speaking of Jesus, 
in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness can't smother light. Jesus says it of himself in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's an image that's used a lot, and I just want to encourage you, don't lose the imagery, right? Don't interpret it too quickly, but see it. Darkness and light. The world is darkness. Jesus comes as light. And the good news is that we are invited into the light to become people of light. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So if we're Christ, if we've confessed our sins, if we become a, a follower of God through Christ, he says, now you're light. And then there's this addition at the end of that verse, walk as children of light. Be different than the dark. This is basic for some of you. But it's a good reminder, and it's good to have the imagery in our minds. We can't miss the implication. If we are the light of the world, the implication is the world is darkness. We are light, which brings us back to the main point. God intends for us to stand out. God's using his people to be an influence on the world. Not for morality's sake, although that's happening. We consider the history of the world minus the followers of God. Lots of implications there. But we're not here just to hold the moral ground. No, we're here to call people. Come out of darkness. Come into light. Here's the thing about light. Real light, true light cannot be hidden. And that's the point Jesus makes in verse 14. You are the light of the world. I wonder if he paused to think of his next metaphor. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let's use our imagination again. It's dark. You're not driving with headlights. You're just walking like Jesus' day. You're walking down a dark road, no light to be seen. You come over a ridge, and when you come over that ridge, you look in the distance, and you see there's a city up there. And the reason you can see it in the dark is because the city has lights. And when you're out there in the middle of darkness, and there's light over there, you can see it. It it can't be hidden. That's the point here. Anyone coming from any direction, they're going to see the light of the city. It's going to pierce through the darkness. And what Jesus wants us to know is that as the people of God, we're supposed to be that city on a hill, living God's way. And if we're God's people living as kingdom citizens, our light can't be hidden. If we're living this way, it will be seen. There's no way to miss it. He says there, you are the light of the world. city set on a hill can't be hidden. You're just working our imagination. Here's another one. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So back to the first metaphor, salt. Salt has a purpose. Now we see the same thing. Light has a purpose. We use it on purpose. 
And try for a second to imagine a time before electricity. If you're having a hard time remembering life without electricity, just think about the ice storm, right? You have power. But back before electricity, it was a lot harder to create light. Now, by the time of Christ, I mean, they have lamps. They would light the lamp, but the lamp burned fuel. Oil would run out. And so it's not just flipping on the light or turning the switch. It's getting the lamp and lighting it and knowing that as long as it burns, we're running fuel down, right? Now, we run electricity too, but we don't think about it that way, do we? It's not going to run out. It's going to keep going. The budget might run out, but... So you light a lamp, and it's not going to be... You don't want to waste it. No one lights a lamp and then covers it up. Why would you go to the trouble of lighting the lamp and burning the oil if you're not going to use it. You light a lamp, and then you put it in the best place so that it gives light to the whole room. The first time we set up the tent that we have, we got inside, and the boys noticed there was a hook at the top. And they started thinking about all the different things. They could, I could hang my jacket on that. I could, I could hang my hat on that hook in the middle of the tent. Well, I took our electric lantern and hung it, and they thought, that's brilliant. Well, I had seen the note on the box that said tent includes a hook for a lantern. Now, I would have figured it out maybe eventually, but the point is those people who made the tent, they knew that when you're in the tent, it would be helpful to have a place to hang light, and it wasn't over on the side. It was right up in the middle because that's the best place to put the light. Jesus wants us to know you're the lantern in a dark tent. You're the lamp in a dark room. You're the city on a hill. You're the light in a dark world. And then he does something. He gives us, this is only the second command so far in this sermon. Up to this point, he's just been describing what we are, who we are. There hasn't actually been a command yet. He just said, you're salt. You're light. There's implications. But now he comes out, he gives the command. Verse 16 in the same way, let your light shine before others. He's saying, don't hide your light. Don't cover up your light. Make sure others can see your light shining. It'd be foolish in a dark tent to throw the lantern under the sleeping bag. It's not helping anybody, right? We hang it up. Let that light shine. Now, I, I'm so thankful for the metaphors, the pictures that God has given us. But if we stay in the pictures too long, we may never actually make good application. So let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's ask some questions. What does it actually mean, real life, to let our light shine? The answer is not that complicated. The answer is we let our light shine by living and speaking as the people of God. And the way we know what the people of God, how they live and how they speak is by knowing his word and what he's called us to. Here's the catch. If we really commit to living and speaking as the people of God, we will stand out. I've been looking forward to the Sermon on the Mount because I do think it's helpful for us as the church right now where we are at this time in our world to 
take some time to be reminded of the way God has called us to live because we are so easily influenced, right? You get online, I get online, and if we're not careful, we're engaged in the same mess as everybody else, talking about it the same way they're talking about it, worried about it the same way they're worried about it. And the words of Jesus should remind us. Beyond that, here's a fear I have for us in Round Rock as Christians, a fear I have for us, is that we've said, I'm the light of the world, and it looks like I'm really nice and friendly. Right? I smile a lot. I'm kind. Be those things. Do those things. But I wonder how much time we forsake actually living and speaking as the people of God, and we substitute just being nice and friendly. We replace the the standards that God has with, "I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good dude. Let's go back to the Beatitudes. The people of God are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Love what is right. Pursue what is right. The people of God are merciful, which means we don't hold grudges. We don't hang on to bitterness. We forgive. The people of God are peacemakers. The world around us is all about division. They say the goal is peace, but it's... it's it's a mess. But as those who are in Christ, we have a different aim. And, and let me take it a step further. Because we can decide in our minds, I'm, I'm living as a Christian, and we've kind of defined that as just being nice and friendly, and that's nothing everyone, no one ever hates us for that. <laughs> but do you remember the end of the Beatitudes? He says, when you live this way, it's going to be opposition. So that, that's a measure. Now, don't go be a jerk so that you can say, I'm living like Jesus. But there is that measure, right? Do we stand out? Are we different? We've been sent with a message that says to the world, you have a need, right? We're calling people out of darkness into light. That's a hard message to to say. But that's the call. And there's a goal. Back to verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So they'll see them. And there's lots of people around them that are nice and friendly. The standard's higher than that. Live as the people of God. Now, let me just get out in front of this because you're, you're, you're going and you're reading the Sermon on the Mount. You're, you're getting familiar with it. I know you, you're, you're, you're careful readers. And you've already read chapter 6, verse 1. It's going to be a little bit before we get there. So let's just go ahead and look at it. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. And you've already starred that, and you've drawn an arrow up to verse 16. You put a question mark, and you said, doesn't add up. Do we want to be seen, or do we not want to be seen? And it comes down to motivation. We'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 6, but... We don't live for God so we can receive the praise of others. But we live by God, and we hope that as we live for God, people will see the difference, and they won't praise us. They'll give glory to our Father who's in heaven. See the difference here? One is for praise for our own pride. The other is for the praise of God. And that's the distinction. See in verse 16. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
There's a difference between living to be praised by men and living for the praise of God. We should give ourselves to living and speaking God's way so that the world will see. And not so our reputation gets built, but so that the reputation of God is enlarged. And this is God's strategy for bringing the kingdom of God. We're sent out as salt and light so that others will see us and worship him. Now, let me say this. This does not mean that we don't speak the gospel, right? Let's not replace, I'm living this way and then God's going to do this. No, there's, there's a call to speak. That's, that's part of it. I said we live and speak as the people of God on purpose. The question is, do people recognize us as the people of God or do we basically look like everybody else? Let me give you one example, and this one's personal and but maybe, maybe it helps you as well. Let's fast forward to Matthew 6, kind of in the middle. Let me ask you this question. How well are you doing at trusting God with the things you can't control? How well do you do that, trusting that God will provide for you? How well do you do believing that God actually cares for you and that you can trust him with the details of your life? How, just rank yourself on that one. Because here's the reality. We live in a society that maybe more than ever is marked by anxiety about the future and fear of what's coming and worry about what we can't see. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Sermon on the Mount's about being different. People of God live different. He says, don't be anxious about what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Here's some more metaphors. Look at the birds. They never sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the world, the Gentiles, seek after all those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. We'll get into the nuances of that text when we get there. But the question I I wanted to ask myself and I want to ask you is, in light of that, are we living as the people of God? Or are we living on the same merry-go-round of anxiety and fear, and worry. The point is, living as the people of God touches every area of our lives. It means we process hard things differently, right? We process need differently. We process worry differently. And if we do that, if your coworker sees you getting crushed by life and you live through it differently, that's the kind of things that people will see, right? When the work's dried up and nobody's getting paid, they see your good works. They see your trust in God. Back to 1 Peter. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see, excuse me, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is our calling, to have lives that show the world the beauty and the glory of Christ for the sake of the world. Again, don't hear me saying that this is the only means of evangelism. There's more to evangelism than living this way, but, but this is part of it. We are salt, we are light. And as we live this way, this kingdom lifestyle, it will be something that the world cannot ignore. Full disclosure, some people will hate you for it. It's in the passage as well. Others will see your good works and give glory to your God who's in heaven. And that's the, the joy. We're almost done. But before we pray, I want to try to push the metaphor into our lives just a little bit further. What does it look like to be salt and light? And let's use the Beatitudes as the, what we're going to look through. And let me just give you three spheres of life and encourage you to think through it. Let's think first about the sphere of your home. When you're with your family, are you salt and light? What, what, what's salt and light? Well, poor in spirit before God, mourning and repentant over sin, meek and humble before God and others, loving and desiring what is right, showing mercy, having purity of heart, Striving for peace in your home. Are we living that way? Parents in the room, if we want our kids to know and love God, it's going to start with us living this way. Be salty at home when no one else but your kids is watching, are watching. Be light. Show them that the people of God are humble, righteous, merciful, pure, and peace, even in the chaos of Tuesday afternoon. Right? Let's try another one. What about in your workplace? How are you doing living before your coworkers, customers, supervisors, as people who are marked by the Beatitudes? Would your coworkers say that you love and pursue what is right no matter the situation? Do they know you as a merciful person, someone who forgives? Do they know you as a person who loves peace? Or are you more known for off-color jokes and gossip? Just push the Beatitudes into your workplace and just see, am I salty? Am I bright? Here's, here's one more, and this one might surprise you. How are we doing being salt and light here together? That's a weird one, isn't it? Let me give you two reasons why I want to encourage us to think about how we're doing here together. First, we should never take for granted that everyone among us is a follower of Christ. And if anywhere they should see salt and light, it should be here. Right? I wonder sometimes if people could spend time with us and walk away thinking they're, they're really not that much different than the world. They're a little weirder than the world, but they're not that much different, right? 
Or would they say, no, that's beautiful. Here's another reason I think we should consider if we're being salt and light in the way that we live together. Because we all need examples of what it looks like, don't we? Because I can come to you and we could be talking about the, the latest headline and we could talk about it the exact same way that I would talk about it with someone else. Or I could come in hot and fired up over the latest thing and David could say, aren't you glad we have a sovereign God who we can trust? He could walk me through that. And what is that? That's salt and light, right? So now the way I talk about that, the way I think about it, it's changed. And we need to strive to be salt and light together because we need to learn from each other what that looks like. So when I come in and I'm, I'm worried about how things are going to play out and people rally around and say, no, no, Matthew 6, right? Let's remember the way God's called us to trust him. And not empty, but, but true and real and substance. When we come together as the people of the kingdom of God, we should be examples to one another of what it looks like to be salt and light so that we can learn from each other and then go back out and do it in the world. I'm so thankful I have friends who reorient my thinking who are salt and light for me so that I can go back into my home, back out to the ball fields, right? The places I go and to be who God has called me to be, salty and bright. I don't generally read long quotes for you, but sometimes they just stick with me. And so I actually put this one on the back of your notes, and we're going to end here. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor, said this about our passage. Perhaps we can sum it all up this way. The true Christian cannot be hidden. He cannot escape notice. A man truly living and functioning as a Christian will stand out. He will be like salt. He will be like a city set up on a hill, a candle set up on a candlestick. But we can also add this further word. The true Christian does not even desire to hide his light. How ridiculous it is to claim to be a Christian and yet deliberately try to hide the fact a man who truly realizes what it means to be a Christian, who realizes all that the grace of God has meant for him and done for him, and understands that ultimately God has done this in order that he may influence others, that kind of person cannot conceal it. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. May our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together.